Good morning, everybody. We're so thankful you're here. You can grab a seat if you'd like. Um, so thankful you're here, especially if you're new um, and uh, if you're new to this place. Um, my guess is, is that, if we get some house lights up too, uh, my guess is, is that there's probably a number of different um, kind of backgrounds in this room today. Um, and I, I recognize that coming to a new place like this is intimidating. Um, and it can be a little overwhelming, um, especially if you're not really used to doing the church thing. Um, but this, this place isn't a church building, so that's probably got to help, right? You feel like you're just going to get a banquet out of it. But um, uh, we're just glad you're here. And some of you are here, and you, um, let's just be honest, you're fed up with religion. Uh, you're fed up with um, what you've come to know is, is religion or Christianity. Uh, some of you are here and you're, you are searching. There's something in your heart that's yearning for something different, um, something that makes sense, um, has meaning to it. Some of, you, some of you are here because you are followers of Jesus. And, and wherever you are, this is actually a place that has people all over the map. Um, and so you are welcome here. And we're just uh, another expression of, for 2,000 years, community of people who have gathered um, in homes and in different places all over to live out and to announce the fact that Jesus has risen, that death no longer has a hold, that the tomb is empty, and that this story actually has something in it that means something and it can unleash something in us that is um, very real and brings real uh, meaning in, in life to your life. So this morning, um, I just wanted to share with you a little quick book that I saw on the, um, I guess you could call it the What Next to Read book shelf at a bookstore a few months ago. And this is the book title. It's huge. It's long. So I put it up on the screen. It, it goes like this. Anyone can paint their nails because gender is imaginary. Everything is meaningless. Love is a myth. Sex is gross. We all die alone. And our stupid bodies will soon return to the dust from whence they came by Jamie, Jamie Mortara. So um, happy Easter, everybody, <laughs> right? Um, now, Jamie, um, it, it, she's writing based on her cultural view and, and what she sees in this world, and I'm starting to see this tone more and more, um, like in our culture, in our city, and, have, and hear this tone from people, and the basic idea goes like this. We are nothing more than animals, with time and chance on our sides. And uh, there's no meaning to life other than the meaning you give to it. You are uh, a glorious accident. Gender, sex, love, morality, it's all uh, made up to help you cope with the cold, hard reality that, you're, that, you, that everyone is just born, they live, and then they die. And that's it. And uh, it's over. And what's striking to me is not the hopelessness of the book title, because I don't know about you, but I don't know if that's like, oh, this looks like a pick-me-up read. Um, it's th the hopelessness doesn't bother me, because ultimately, that'll play itself out. I mean, our, our if you just follow what, uh, what is just out there, it'll play out, and you'll end up like this. But what is striking to me is the last line of the book. Besides the word stupid, which is an addendum, 
Our, our bodies will soon return to the dust from whence they came. What is that a quote from? Genesis. It's a quote from the Bible, right? Jamie, you're quoting the Bible. In fact, Jamie, you need to update your translation because that's the King James Version, right? <laughs> whence? Who uses whence? Um, and so I, I, was, I was struck by that because I think that um, it reminds me of the opening line of Julian Barnes's novel. He says, um, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. And there's another guy named Charles Taylor who wrote his book on secularism. In fact, if you go into university work or whatever, there's like a, uh, you, you, you'll probably get handed this thousand page tome on secularism, uh, depending on what you study. And, and it's super boring, don't read it. But here's the thing. In it, um, one of his, his initial thoughts is this, that Western culture as a whole is haunted by the memory of God that we're haunted by something about who God is and, and, and what this whole idea is. And, and the thing is, is that in our culture, for the most part, we've done away with Easter. We've done away from the story of Easter. The story of Easter just ha has lost its meaning um, because it's hard to believe that dead messiahs come back to life because we have Wikipedia. We have technology. And those things are, help us to understand that those are all superstitions of a pre-modern world. And so the reason why I'm sharing all this with you is no matter what you do to try to write off this idea that Messiah has come back to life, that, to get rid of this superstition, I believe like Julian Barnes and like um, this other writer, I lost his Charles Taylor, that we are all haunted by the memory of God. We're actually all haunted by another story. That there's something in us that thinks that there's some other story going on. That's the story I want to talk to us about today. So there's this guy named Paul, and he wrote a big chunk of what we call the New Testament. And in Scripture, the New Testament is about a third of the Bible. It's, in the, it's at the end. And this group of writings in the New Testament comes up and grew up around the life and teachings of Jesus of Nazareth. And Paul was a Jewish scholar, rabbi, intellectual savant, super, super smart dude. And he actually didn't like Jesus of Nazareth. He actually did everything he could to war against uh, what this Jesus character was all about until he met and encountered Jesus of Nazareth um, and, and until he met him as resurrected back from the dead Jesus. And then his life changed, it altered, and he took all of his intellectual wit and his, and his, and his smarts and his understanding of Jewish scripture, and he, he basically started to work out the implications of who Jesus was based on what all of the rest of scripture said. And he, and he worked out the implications of Jesus and his resurrection. And so what we're going to do really briefly is we're going to look at Paul's most in-depth teaching on the resurrection because that's what we're talking about today. That's what Easter is. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1 starts like this. It says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. 
If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. Now that word gospel, he mentions it twice in the letter right there, is actually the word, it's a Greek word, euangelion, which actually means announcement, good news is what it is. And it's a Greek word that was a political word far before it was a religious word. And so if you wanted to announce good news, like, like a Roman, uh, like a, a, a Roman um, occupation or capture of another city or, or whatever that was good news to Romans, they would send somebody to share that gospel, okay? And so what is Paul talking about when he says this is good news, this is the gospel, what are we rescued from? He says this, verse three, for, I ha- for what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for your sins and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas, which is another name for Peter, and then the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep, which is a, uh, a way of saying they've, they've passed away. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. That's a tricky phrase at the end. We're not going to get into it, but what he's saying is is that paragraph is Paul's summary of the announcement. It's his summary of the good news, and it's like whittled down. It's bare bones, stripped down to its bare bones, and it's basically this. Jesus died, was buried, was resurrected, and he appeared to many of us, and we are eyewitnesses to him. Now, what's interesting about that whole thing is a couple times he mentions according to the scriptures, and what's interesting is is that Paul's not making anything new up here. This isn't like, hey, I'm going to start my own religion. No, Paul is actually pushing everything back on the Old Testament, on the stuff that he was trained in, and he sees it all working through this narrative arc all the way through scripture, and he says, according to the scriptures, this is what has happened. And in Paul's view of scripture is this, there was a creator, and this creator God created everything, heavens and earth, everything we see, and, and it's beautiful and it was perfect, and he created human beings to have uh, this, this special kind of rulership, stewardship over creation, and, and to bring everything to flourishing. We're different from animals, um, and we're different from everything else, and we have this ability to reason and move and, and do the things that we do. He created every male and female with, with uh, gender and sexuality and marriage and love. He created you and I to have like, um, we're chocked full of meaning and purpose inherent in who we are. And he created humanity to live forever to go on living and flourishing as his creation. And some of you know the story, the tragic part of the story, there was a breakdown, that these first human beings, these proto-humans, actually tried to seize autonomy from God, decide for themselves what was good and what was not, what was good for them and what was not, what was the real true story of the world in their mind's eye. They basically had this uh, this and for whatever you could call it, a statement or a, a way of living that we're okay, we'll take it from here. And that's when death, death and all of his friends entered. 
And the story goes that yes, there is death, and, and, and although that the story has gone wrong, death still isn't the final end, as Paul says, even in the grave we sleep. But why Easter? Well, Paul gets to that in verse 12. Check this out. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no re- resurrection of the dead? Now, in this time of Paul's writing, he's actually writing to a group of people in Corinth that actually are very much under this Roman idea of the afterlife. And the Roman idea of the afterlife is much like many people in our secular utopia here in Denver believe that, that there's no thought of life after death. You just die. Death is the end and there's nothing else. So Paul says in verse 13, he says, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either, And if Christ has not been raised, think about it, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins, then those all all who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are uh, are of all people most to be pitied. He's basically saying this, and I love Paul's bracing honesty. Like, he just lays it out. What he's saying is, and these are kind of his words, is if the Easter story isn't true, then a whole lot of other things are. And he starts to list them out. For one, Paul and his friends are liars. (laughs) Two, he says, second, death is just the end, just this cold, hard reality of an abyss of non-existence. And three, he says, followers of Jesus are to be most pitied. They're stupid and gullible, and they're the most stupid and gullible people on the planet. That's what Paul says. But, on the other hand, if the story's true, and Paul believes it is, then what Paul and his friends are saying in the New Testament is the real true story of the world. If the story's true, then death is not the end, it's just the beginning. If the story's true, then followers of Jesus are, are onto something that has the ability to bring hope to the world like real, authentic hope. So there's a whole lot of stake here. And so Paul keeps going. He gets into what Easter actually means. He says, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. It's this idea of first fruits is, for all of you farmers out there, that um, like the first bit, like the first grape you see, or the first tomato on the vine or whatever, like that is the promise, that's the, the promise of more of that to come, right? Like the first harvest of the season. That's what he's saying, that Jesus is like the first fruit, the taste that there's more of that to come. And he says, for since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. What Paul is saying is that what happened to Jesus will happen to all his followers, all the people who call him Lord. 
And, and what's interesting is that one day, uh, according to scripture, according to Paul, is that all humanity will be resurrected. That we will all experience our resurrected, uncorrupted bodies, but there's going to be this, this time, this, the, the scripture calls it the day of the Lord, that on that day, that we'll all stand before God and there's going to be something called judgment. Now, before you get all weirded out by that, what judgment means in scripture is that God ends up rearranging the board how it's supposed to be. Rearranging the board in your life rearranging the board in the world. And it's a really powerful time. And for followers of Jesus, it's actually a beautiful time. It's a coming home time. It's a time that says, this is what I've been working for. This is what I have been waiting for and yearning for all of my life. It's a reshuffling of the deck. And so Paul is talking about life after, life after death. And for some of us who grew up with this kind of pop theology about going to heaven when we die, Paul is not talking about that here. Paul is talking about life after that, which is a resurrected body here on a remade, recreated earth where there will be no more of all of the things that we struggle with in this world. He says, then the end will come. And the end is the Greek word telos, which is where we get the word teleology if you're kind of a nerdy philosophy person. It doesn't mean the end of the time-space universe. It actually means that God's ultimate goal will be finished. That God's ultimate plan will wrap itself up. Paul's not writing about the end of the world. He's, He's actually writing about the end of a world a world in which death and all of his friends are running the show. And that's what we get excited about. Verse 24, then the end will come, he says, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. So every corrupt power system in the world torn down forever. That sounds really good. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And then when you hear the word enemies, you might be thinking in our cultural context, things like North Korea and ISIS and whatever, or like like whatever political party that you're not into. That's not what he's talking about. He's actually talking about, here's, here's what he's saying. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. For Paul... The resurrection is not just good news for Jesus. The resurrection is not just good news for your body, the no more pain and suffering part. It's it's about life after death. It's actually about life after life after death. It's about hope for the planet. It's about hope for what God's intent was for humanity, that there'll be no more missile tests in North Korea, there'll be no more drone strikes in Pakistan, there'll be no more protests or school shootings, no more cancer, no more people writing checks at Costco. (laughs) Like, no more, like if you do that, stop it. No more, <laughs> no more suicide, no more mental illness, no more, no more. 
and all the creation will come back under the rule and reign of God just like it was in the beginning. I'm just kidding about the Costco check thing. Just, it's okay. Mark Sayers is a guy I like to read. He writes great stuff. And he's a writer and a cultural commentator from Australia. He wrote this. It's a long quote, so bear with me. Jesus' life on earth points us toward the future. His actions act as clues showing us how the story of creation will continue in the future. Pay attention to this. Jesus' healing of the disabled points toward a time when humans will be healed physically and mentally. Jesus' deliverance of those possessed by evil demons points to a future when evil will be expelled from our world. Jesus' feeding of those without food is a glimpse of a future world where there will be no hunger, poverty, or, or starvation. By turning over the tables of the merchants selling religious products in the temple, Jesus shows us that our future will be a time when worship of God will not be compromised by corruption and greed. Jesus' honoring of women, Samaritans, and children speaks of a time when no humans will be marginalized. Above all, Jesus' resurrection speaks of a time when death and suffering will be defeated and the world will be resurrected. Sadly, though, most Christians miss these illusions living as we do under the shadow of a hyper-real world. Meaning, we miss it. We miss all this. We forget this. We get lulled into the rhythm and the pulse of what we experience all around us every day. Now keep in mind, the world of Jesus' time had never before seen this kind of hope. And so when Jesus is doing all these miracles, people just don't know where to put it. They don't know where it fits. They don't know what to do with it. There's a guy named Thomas Cahill, and he wrote this book called The Gift of the Jews. He's not a follower of Jesus, but he's a tremendous writer, and he makes the case that in every ancient culture, from the beginning of time, every ancient culture had a cyclical view of life. Meaning life had the, had, had really was just kind of, it was destined to repeat itself over and over and over again, wrapping itself around the calendar. And religions were all based on an agrarian calendar. So you plant, you sow, you harvest, you know, do the thing, and then it starts back over again. Cahill believed that the Israelite people, the people of Israel, God's chosen, were the first culture to emerge with a linear view of life meaning life was going somewhere, that there was this anticipated wonderful culmination coming that they were all a part of and that God was steering them towards and, and that, that there was an outcome that all of humanity was going somewhere. And here's the thing that's so interesting, like the story of progress, of human progression actually comes from scripture, actually comes from the people of Israel. Another, another amazing quote comes from a guy named Edward Say that is, he, he, wrote, he wrote about the modern novel and how we get character development and story arcs and things like that and how there's culmination. And he wrote this, the novel is specifically Christian. It's a specifically Christian form of writing. It presupposes a world that is incomplete, 
that is yearning for salvation and moving toward it. By contrast, the world of Islam is a closed and complete world, meaning he wasn't bagging on Islam. What he was saying is, is like the writing coming out, the, the way the novel was created, and it was created by uh, Christians uh, it, it, all throughout history, had, had a flow to it that meant there was going to be culmination, that there was something um, that was not complete yet that would be complete in the future. Now, the Greco-Roman world that Paul was writing in had two kinds of literature, okay? Does anybody remember those? Tragedy and comedy, right? And, and tragedy was real, but it wasn't fun. Comedy was fun, but it wasn't real. And so you have these two different things, and there was nothing else in that time period. And so what was shaping the culture at the time is you developed really two different schools of thought, Stoicism and Epicureanism. Stoics believed in phones, and no, I'm just kidding, Stoics believed, if you, hey, it happens. Stoics believed life is a tragedy. Life is a tragedy, and so you need to come up with your own system of morality and purpose uh, in life just so you could grit your teeth and bear the rest of it. Do you know any Stoics? Maybe one sitting next to you? I don't know, maybe. Epicureans believe that you would live in the moment. Life's a tragedy, but just live in the moment. Eat, drink, for what? Tomorrow we die, right? Those are your two ways to really cope with life. But Jesus' resurrection at Easter itself introduced a new way of thinking because there's already really two gospels in the Roman world. There was the gospel of Rome, and these are kind of storylines, right? These are like how you make sense of life. There's the gospel of Rome, which basically said, remember, this isn't a political world uh, word. It's, a it's not a religious word. It's a political word. Basically, the gospel of Rome was Rome's the best. Rome's the greatest. And if you're a part of that Rome system, that Roman upper society, man, it was good news, right? I mean, it was great news for you because you had the rest of the world under your foot by the neck. But the anti-gospel would be the problem is, is if you weren't a Roman citizen, if you were a barbarian, if you were a, kind of up in the European part of the world, it wasn't good news for you. It wasn't good news. It was good news for you if you were rich, not if you were poor. The gospel of Rome was good news for you if you were a man and not a woman. If you were a Roman citizen and not a slave. If, if you were a, an upper minority or it was good news for you, but if you were a lower majority, it wasn't good news for you at all. So G Jesus introduces a, a new gospel, a new announcement that talks about this kingdom of God, this, this brilliant peasant rabbi that we believe to be the son of God actually grew up not in wealth, not on the upper crust, but in the margins of society. He was poor and under oppression, and he saw injustice, and he said one day that this Roman world will collapse, that all empires will fall, and that God will usher in a new kingdom. And he actually invites his followers to be a part of it now. 
like right now. Like this, this weird kind of experience where we know it to be true and know it to be happening and we can be part of it now and yet it hasn't totally happened yet, but we can see it, taste it. So here we are in another continent, in another culture, in another age, and instead of the gospel of Rome, we have the gospel of Denver. Let's talk about Denver a little bit. Bustling, fast-growing, full of great, fun traffic, cranes everywhere, restaurants. We have the most breweries per capita of any city in the country, in the world. You can get new food, new drink, new highs. You can go to the outdoors. You can, you can, you can run a 5K every friggin' weekend, you know? You can get a t-shirt for running that 5K, you know? You can, you can create anything you want in Denver. It's like a little kingdom without a king. We've pushed, left all of our superstitions behind here in Denver. But here's what we have. We have the gospel of materialism, which says more stuff plus more money equals more happiness. We have the gospel of marriage and family, right? Like if I could just get married and have a family, I'll be complete. If I just had a minivan and a house in the suburbs, right? How's that working out? Don't say anything. They're right next to you. Um, The gospel of fame about getting more notoriety, whether it's in your job or social media, the gospel of science and technology, the, the Elon Musk vision of the world where we can simultaneously fix ourselves and heal our planet and then just nuke it all because we have the ability, we have the power. The gospel of sexuality. This is the gospel that says that every, every urge that I have is to be pursued and forms the basis of my identity. And if you limit me, it's oppressive, and if I limit me, it's repressive. See, the, but there's, there's the anti-gospel, too, under the story, right? Because Denver's not all puppies and rainbows. Denver, if you don't make enough money, how's rent going? Our mortgage, our house prices, all this stuff is just climbing, 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 and poverty is high, and gentrification is high, and racism is right there under the surface. And I was on a ride along with the commander in the Arvada PD, and he came from a, a larger town to be um, in the Arvada PD. And I'm like, hey, what's different? And he's like, mental illness. It's most of the calls I go on. You're right here in Arvada, right here in cozy Arvada, right? There's disillusionment and disappointment and and chasing a better high and a better status and a better identity and right all on there, right under the surface is all this angst and anger, frustration, disappointment. At some point we wake up and we go, you know what? Brunch isn't going to do it anymore. It's just not, it's not going to do it. I heard about beer mosas. I mean, come on. Can we just, that's, a, that's an abomination. If that was in Leviticus, it would be an abomination, 
I'm just rewriting the Bible. But this idea of like, like the next experience, the next stamp in the, the passport, right? The, the next thing. At some point you realize that, that living for your own fame just doesn't do it anymore. And there has to be more. And there has to be more than another update and an accolade and a, and a, there's just this deep human angst in us. We're haunted by a different story. The gospel of Jesus is something that I believe is still alive and well and flourishing. Even in the midst of a post-Christian world that we live in. This announcement says something that uh, I think brings great hope to the world. Great hope that isn't uh, based on our government, thank goodness. Um, it's not based on education or, or science or technology or the next killer app. And all that stuff's important in that industry. And if that's part of your life, keep doing it, keep pressing in. But that's not where our ultimate hope is. Our ultimate hope is this understanding that life is hard, that there's no utopia this side of Jesus' return, and, and the greatest problem facing humanity isn't a lack of food or water or education or democracy. It's actually the greatest problem facing humanity is the fact that the human heart is bent in towards itself. And that's what we got to get down to. We're bent towards ourselves to seize autonomy from God, to define our own identity and our own version of what is good and right. And our great hope is that the resurrection changed the game. It totally changed the game to put the human project back on track to, and really I'm here this morning just because I find Jesus to be so compelling. Like here's a guy who grew up on the margins and, and, and poor and kind of written off, like, and anything good come from Nazareth, you know, they would say, and, and, and he was just written off in so many ways, but, but this, this, this man, this human Jesus, I imagine was full of joy. I mean, even through all the stuff he experienced, like, I, I just imagine him to be um, thinking ahead, fueled by hope for the future. A guy who was, had his eye on the horizon, and he was not sucked into the here and now. He wasn't sucked into this idea of hedonism where every animal urge that I have needs to be figured out. And, or, and he wasn't sucked into disillusionment like we're all going down. He had this eye on the horizon. He knew that, that the, the plan was at work. That, that, and, and, and knowing that lifts his head and, and lifts the heads of his followers around him. That life, This life is not all there is. That there is forever that this body, that this angst, that these regrets, the shame that we have, this disappointment, the loneliness, the, the yearning, the cancer, the, the, all of it, it's not forever. It's not forever. This is not defining me. And, and one day this will all pass away. There is more. There is a forever. And listen, Following Jesus fuels that view of life. Following Jesus, the resurrection, actually apprenticing Jesus sees the horizon as something totally different. That resurrection changes the game. Then my question for us this morning is we're celebrating the resurrection, celebrating Easter. 
is which gospel are you believing? Which gospel are you living? Because we all live a gospel. We all live an announcement. We all live a reality. Are you living the gospel of Denver? Another brewery, another brunch, another passport stamp, another career upgrade, another sexual encounter? Are you living the anti-gospel? That there's, this is all there is, and our stupid bodies will let us down and return to the dust from whence they came. The gospel of Jesus is a whole different one to believe and live. It's a game changer. It's, a, it's an announcement that says, this is good news, that, it, that this is not all there is. Right? This is not all there is. There's more. Not only more for the future, but more from the present, the right now. And the invitation to believe and to follow is an interesting thing because a lot of times we just, um, we like to add the belief to our life. Like, I'm just going to go on doing my own life, but now I believe in God. But Jesus never presented the invitation that way, okay? He never presented the invitation as, add, add me, add me in, mix me in. His invitation was to come and die. His invitation was, actually, you will find your life when you lose it. His invitation was to believe and follow. And this morning, the resurrection, you just need to understand, it reshapes human history. It's the beginning of a whole new story. And it can be the beginning of a whole new story in your own life, in your own family, in your own world. And we say this a number of times, and we've said this before, and if you're new to this place, this might be the first time you hear it. Jesus did not come into this world to make bad people good. Jesus came into this world to make dead people live. And that's what this is all about. So if you walked in here this morning and you're like, oh, I'm gonna get beat up again for not being moral. That's not the point. The point is a whole new resurrected full life that Jesus has on offer. And he goes to the cross and he becomes resurrected for you, for me, to give us new life here and forever. Is that compelling? It's very compelling to me. Let me pray.